You're listening to the Grace City Boston podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at gracecityboston.com or follow us on social media at Grace City Boston. Now, let's get to the sermon. Good morning, church. All right, there we go. It's good, so good to be with you this morning. Um, I, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is David, and I'm a local barista around the area. They just let me talk here sometimes, and so I'm here to give the message today. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I am a barista, but just part-time. I am a church planting resident here at Grace City, which means that I get to learn from you. It means that I get to learn from the staff and from church planting in the city with the hopes of church planting somewhere else in the city of Boston one day. And so it is always an honor It is always a privilege to be able to come here, to be able to share the word, uh, read the word with you all today. Um, And so we have been in this series called First and Last. And First and Last has really been about how Jesus is before all things, he will be after all things. And the Old Testament, therefore, is all about Jesus. Jesus is the fulfilling and he is the full culmination of the Old Testament stories. Now, we didn't just pull this out of thin air. Right? We didn't just sit around in our, in our office and make this up. Uh, this is something that we found from the cues of Jesus, something from Jesus' words. Uh, if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you've heard this uh, every week, and you're probably sick of it by now, but it is Luke 24, and it says this, He told them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. This is Jesus speaking that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So he's claiming the law of Moses, the prophets, the prophets, the Psalms. He's claiming the Old Testament is about him. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. Now, you may be sick of this scripture by now, um, but this scripture, as well as this ser- as well as this series, I absolutely love. And mostly because there is a fallacy that goes around quite a bit that the Old Testament God is quite different than the New Testament God. This is a fallacy. This is not correct. But there is this there is this idea that the God of the Old Testament, at best, he's moody. But, but at worst, he's wrathful and he's angry and he always wants vengeance and he's evil. So we see this in the Old Testament. And if you're entering into spaces talking about deism, especially talking about deism with the Christian God, this will come up quite quickly. That the God of the Old, Tis- Old Testament is, is very moody. He's very angry. And this, we believe, this we claim, is not true. But if Jesus is the culmination of all of the Old Testament, if our God is who he says he is, he has never once changed. Amen. So our God has been the same when he was the God of Abraham, when he was the God of Joseph, as we're going to read today. And our God is still the same. And our God will always be the same. This is good news. Okay. So I love this. First and last, we're going to see that our God has, has never changed. Now, I want to take a survey really quick. Um, raise your hand if you are familiar with the story of Joseph, right? We're not recording this. This isn't going to be like written down so that we can take notes on you later. This isn't what's happening. But the story of Joseph, I only ask because it's a good story. And when you hear it for the first time, it's, it's a little bit different than when you've heard it for the fourth or the fifth or the sixth time. So if this is the first time that you're hearing the story of Joseph, this is going to be good. 
This is going to be really good. And so the story of Joseph is a wonderful, wonderful story. It is a long story. It's a very long story. In fact, at the end of Genesis, it is 12 chapters long. So buckle in. We'll, hear, we'll be here until about 5 o'clock tonight. We're going to go through all 12 chapters. I'm kidding. I'm going to have to move through some of this. Regrettably, I'm going to have to miss a couple places in the beautiful story of Joseph. Now do me a favor. I beg you, go, go test my work. Go check my work. And please go read the story for yourself. If you have not read the story of Joseph, this is your homework. Welcome to summer school. You must, if you have not, or if it has been a while, you must go read the story of Joseph. Joseph, it is incredible. It is incredible. And so that is your homework for today. There is a lot of scripture today, okay? And we're not going to go through all 12 chapters, but this sermon is completely chock full of, of scripture. That's not a bad thing, right? Because David's words will not last that long. They, won't, they will fade away. They're not that important. David has very few very eternally important things to say. The Bible, on the other hand, the God's word will always be relevant and it has incredibly important things to say for us today. And so our scripture, our scripture is just all the way throughout the sermon. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. But please hang in there with me because there's a lot of it. Hang in there with me and we will hear about Joseph uh, and our God who never changes so we're going to go through three different lessons today. You might, you might not have known this, but Joseph is going to teach us about these three things. He's going to teach us about contentment and the karate kid. He's going to teach us about contentment and the karate kid. He's going to teach us about God's will and Tom Cruise, as well as, his, you didn't know he was in there, but he is, God's will and Tom Cruise. And also he's going to teach us about radical forgiveness and resurrection. And so we're going to learn, if you want to follow the flow of the sermon, you'll be able to follow it this way today. We're going to learn these three lessons from the beautiful, beautiful story of Joseph. Let's pray before we get into this scripture, okay? God, we love you. We thank you. We thank you that you are with us, God. We, uh, we, sing, we sing these words that we will remember. And so, God, we tell these stories uh, in public. We tell these stories out loud to remember who you are, to remember your goodness, to remember your provision, to remember the trials and the tribulations, but God, also how you overcame those. And so, God, we, we read this in the hopes that this brings you glory. God, we, we read this, we do all of this for the intent that it would bring you glory. So, God, I pray anything that is of us, anything that is of the small name of Grace City, anything that is of my name that looks selfish, God, I pray that it falls flat. I pray that it looks obviously foolish and that it goes nowhere. Anything that is of, of me, I pray that it makes nothing happen. But God, anything that is of you today, God, anything that is of you, Lord, I pray that it pierces our hearts. And I pray that it rattles around in our minds and that we would leave here forever changed. So God, we pray this for your glory. And all God's people said, amen, amen. So we're going to get into our first, our first lesson. But as Anna already read for us, Joseph has had a rough start, hasn't he? Now, maybe he was a, maybe he was a little bit of a troublemaker in, in the beginning of the story. But the poor boy has been sold into slavery. So maybe go on, goes on record as the worst big brothers in the world. But they sell their little brother into slavery. And Judah leads this charge. What a rough start. What a rough way to begin our scripture. But let's get into this first lesson, contentment and the karate kid. Joseph is going to teach us about contentment 
and the Karate Kid. This is Genesis 39, uh, starting in verses 1 and 2, and we'll, we'll move around a little bit. But it says this, Now Joseph had been taken to Egypt. Remember, he's, he's been captured. He's a slave now. And now Joseph had been taken to Egypt. An Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, and the captain of the guards bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. Now this is good news. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man, serving in the household of his Egyptian master. We go to verse 6. He left all that he owned, the master left all that he owned, under Joseph's authority. He did not concern himself with anything except for the food that he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. Our, our boy Joseph was looking good. So he was well-built and he was handsome. After some time, his master's wife looked longingly at Joseph and said, sleep with me. She's not leaving any questions here. She says, sleep with me. But he refused. Look, he said to his master's wife, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in this house. And he has put all that he owns under my authority. No one in this house is greater than I am. He has withheld nothing from me except you because you were his wife. So how could I do this immense evil and how could I sin against God? Now, if you have been here the last couple of weeks, we've gone through some other men of the Old Testament who didn't live up to quite this standard. We talked about Adam, and yes, he was the first to sin against God. We talked about Abram, who turns into Abraham, and he, when he does not have a son, and the timing that he prefers, he forces a son, and this causes all kinds of issues. And we see this that even Joseph's father, Jacob, before he's named Israel, his name is Jacob, which means the deceiver. And he was, uh, he was already playing favorites with his children. So the Old Testament men have already left quite a bit to long for. The Old Testament men have already left quite a bit um, that, to be desired. Yet Joseph is quite an admirable man. Joseph is an admirable Old Testament man. Actually, to be frank, it makes him quite easy to preach about because it's a lot easier to preach about Joseph than it would be Abraham or it would be, uh, or it would be Jacob, as my friends have done before me. But Joseph is this admirable man, admirable man. In this last verse, he says this beautiful line, how could I do this immense evil and how could I sin against God? He has no desire. He has no desire. But poor Joseph, he gets set up. And Potiphar's wife frames him we see this as it continues into verse 16. Potiphar's wife put Joseph's garment beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. The Hebrew slave you brought to us came to make a fool of me. But when I screamed for help, he left his garment beside me and ran outside. When his master heard the story his wife told him, these are the things your slave did to me, he was furious and had him thrown into prison where the king's prisoners were confined. So Joseph was there in prison. He is down on his luck once again, but the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. He granted him favor with the prison warden. The warden put all the prisoners who were in the prison under Joseph's authority, and he was responsible for everything that was done there. So it seems that the prisoner has now become the warden, all because the Lord is with Joseph. You see, Joseph has already been constantly mistreated. The poor boy. He has been, he's been sold into slavery, and when he was within Potiphar's house, 
he only did well, he only did good things for his master, and yet being framed, he was thrown in prison again, and yet while he is in prison, he is faithful and he uh, works well within the prison and he rises in status even there. Why? Because the Lord is with him. This changes everything. No matter where he is, the Lord is with him. This reminds us of another New Testament writer, another person of the Bible, and his name is Paul. If you're familiar with Paul, he once ravaged the Christian church and was a Christian killer, and after coming face-to-face with Jesus, it changes everything. And that's what an encounter with Jesus will do. It will change everything. And so after this encounter with Jesus, he becomes a prolific writer for the Christian church, and he preaches everywhere that he can, and he writes the majority of the New Testament. This is Paul. This is Paul. And so Joseph and Paul have a lot in common. Paul, writing from prison, much like Joseph, Writing from prison, this is his perspective. This is the book of Philippians. It says this, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. So Paul says, though I am in prison, that is fine because the gospel is spreading. Finally, we see this this wonderful perspective of Paul at the end of the letter. This is a powerhouse of a verse. You probably know it. In, In Philippians 4, he says this, I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. This is much like Joseph, right? I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little. I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. And so Paul and Joseph, though in the midst of unjust terrible situations, they have learned the secret of contentment, our first lesson. Contentment in the Karate Kid, they have learned the secret of contentment. Dr. Tony Evans teaches this better than I could. And Dr. Tony Evans says this, contentment means being satisfied and at rest with where God has you, despite what's happening around you. Listen to this, it's not natural or automatic, it must be learned. God teaches us contentment through the ups and downs of changing circumstances. He wants us to learn to depend on him and his divine enablement, no matter what happens to us or around us. As we grow in our understanding and experience of his providence, we will also grow in our level of contentment. Amen. So the Karate Kid teaches us this as well. Contentment and the Karate Kid. How many of you see, have you seen the Karate Kid? Right? Not, and I'm, I'm talking not the original one, the one with Daniel LaRusso, Mr. Miyagi, right? He, do, he does what? Again, this is homework. If you haven't, it, there's worse homework that has been assigned. You must read the story of Joseph, please. You must, you must watch The Karate Kid. There have been worse things assigned in school, okay? So The Karate Kid, it's an absolute classic, and he teaches him karate how. He teaches him through these menial tasks, right? The first thing he is doing, he's sanding the deck, 
right? And he's sanding the deck again and again for hours and hours. And then he has Daniel LaRusso painting the fence up and down and up and down. And finally, he has Daniel LaRusso, Danielson. He has him wax on and wax off. Thank you very much. Good, good Danielson. Very good. So when he was finished, he had the muscle memory of karate. Though he didn't know it, he had the muscle memory of karate with his wax on, wax off, sanding the deck and painting the fence. He had learned karate. Our contentment is very much like this method, is that no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, we need to exercise these muscles. Whether we be in plenty or whether we be in need, we need to practice this contentment muscle memory, if you will. So the lesson that Joseph and Paul show us is this. It is our dependence on God in the midst of any circumstance that causes us to grow in faith, not searching for the best of circumstances. So this is contentment and the karate kid. We see Joseph in the midst of unjust places, and yet he is content. Why? Because the Lord is with him. The Lord is with him, so he is content. We keep going. Our lesson number two, God's will and Tom Cruise. You didn't know he was in there, but here he comes. God's will and Tom Cruise. As we continue in our story of Genesis, Joseph, remember, he's the warden. He's taking, he's taking care of all of the prisoners, and things are flourishing under Joseph's commands. But while he is a warden, while he is working within the prison, Pharaoh hears that Joseph is able to interpret dreams. Pharaoh hears that Joseph is able to interpret these dreams, and Pharaoh has a dream that is scaring him. So he, hints, he sends for Joseph, and Joseph comes, and he tells him the interpretation to his dream. And listen, he tells Pharaoh this. He says, there will be seven years of prosperity in the land of Egypt. There will be seven years of prosperity in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh, right after these seven years, there will be seven years of severe famine. Now, what would be good is for in the first seven years of prosperity, take a fifth of the harvest and store it in storehouses so that when the seven years of famine comes, Egypt will not starve. And Joseph advises Pharaoh just like this. This is the scripture that immediately follows this. Genesis 41, Pharaoh hears the interpretation of his dreams. He hears, he hears Joseph's suggestion and he says this, the proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And he said to them, can we find anyone like this, a man who has God's spirit in him? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as discerning and wise as you are. You will be over my house and all my people and will obey and they will obey your commands. Only I as king will be greater than you. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, see, I am placing you over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and he put it on Joseph's hand clothed him with fine linen garments and placed a gold chain around his neck. He had Joseph ride in his second chariot and servants called out before him, make way. So he placed him over all the land of Egypt. See, Joseph has come a long way. Joseph began, he was sold by his own brothers to a slave trade. He was purchased by Potiphar and while being faithful in Potiphar's house, he was set up. And he, in, he ends up thrown in prison 
And while being faithful where he is in prison, Pharaoh finds him and makes him second in command over all of Egypt. I'd like to point out, this was 13 years after his first dream. This was 13 years after hearing from God the prophecy that his brothers, or that he would be in a royal position, and after 13 years, he finally finds himself here. At what point, I must ask you, at, at what point did it seem like Joseph was on the right path? At what point did it seem like Joseph was going to make it or Joseph was going to build his resume in the correct way to be able to be the royalty that Pharaoh needed him to be? At what point when he was in prison did this seem right? At what point when he was a slave in Potiphar's house did this look like it would happen? Now, if it were my 13-year plan, it would look very different. For my 13-year plan, I would advise Joseph, you need to get into some some sort of royal decree. You need to be building your resume. You need to be finding references. This is really important for you, Joseph. If you ever have a chance to work for Pharaoh, for your brothers to to bow down, then you really need to be working in this way. And yet, God used him in a very, very beautiful but different way. I'd like to correct, while we're up here, I'd like to correct some damaging theology. There are some damaging beliefs that that are pretty common amongst uh, Christians, amongst us, uh, that I would, like to, um, I would like to acknowledge today. There are many, many times, there are certainly many options that we have when we are weighing our choices, we are weighing our college majors, we are weighing our career paths, and we believe explicitly or implicitly that there is God's will and then there are the other wills. So there is God's will in the midst of these amoral or non-moral decisions, that there is this path that we must find, and that is the route that will lead us to God's favor. That is the route that will lead us to God's blessing. And if we choose the other route, we may be stuck with a life that is less full of God's presence and not pleasing to him. Now, I would like to put this at rest with with one lesson. And this is a hard lesson, but this is, this is a good lesson. It's sobering, certainly, but it's comforting. It's that my friends, we are not able to thwart God's will. We are certainly not able, we are certainly not powerful enough to get ourselves away from God's presence. Wherever we go, he is with us. So this is the lesson for today. We should refrain from worrying about what the future holds and rather delight in the one who holds the future. You see, if he holds the future, if he's the one who is providentially in charge of Joseph and providentially in charge of us, then we can rest in the fact that he already knows where we will be. And he has ordained this, and he loves us through this process. So let's talk about Tom Cruise. Let's talk about Tom Cruise. There is a movie that he was in in 2014. You probably haven't seen it. It's called Edge of Tomorrow. Has anybody seen this? Anybody seen this? We have one. Last service, nobody. It was not a single person. So we have one, The Edge of Tomorrow from 2014. You, the rest of you have not seen this movie. Um, it is not homework. It's okay. It's not, it's not an incredible movie. Go watch The Karate Kid. Go read the story of Joseph, please. Don't, 
don't really worry about the edge of tomorrow. But the, as, as we see this, this is the premise of, of Tom Cruise's movie, uh, is that he wakes up in the middle of a battle. He wakes up in the middle of a war. And he has an experience where at the, at the end of the day, he finds himself in the middle of a battle amidst the war, and he dies. And he immediately wakes up in the same place that he woke up that morning. And the identical experience happens again. The same people talk to him, same experiences happen, and he lives his life. And when he comes to that battle once again, and he dies, he's back in that same spot right in the beginning. And so we see him relive this day again and again and again. And the poor guy, we see Tom Cruise die 26 times within the movie, because he passes away 26 times. And in the protagonist of the novel that this is based upon, the protagonist dies 300 times. And so we have this, we have this idea that Tom Cruise is trying to forge, trying to find exactly the right, uh, he's trying to find exactly the right avenue, lest he be doomed forever. And if he were to choose the wrong avenue, then we know that it is death for him. I fear that we often believe that our God's will is much like this, that there is only one right and good path, and if we don't stumble upon it, or if we don't find the one right good path, then it is doomed for us. My friends, this isn't true. This is not true. Our God goes with us, and we are to be faithful. We are to be faithful like Joseph. We are to be faithful like Paul, where we find ourselves. So if God's will works this way, our chances don't look very good. But, my friends, you are not able to thwart God's will. We are not able to thwart God's plan, and he goes with us. And so I don't know where you are right now. Maybe you didn't even worry about this before you came in here this morning. Or maybe this is something that has bothered you. And you're choosing between college majors, and you've chosen your second major, and then your third major, now you're on to your fourth major, whatever it might be. Or maybe you are deciding between careers or deciding between staying in Boston, going from Boston. This is a transient city. These decisions, we talk about them often. But no, just like Joseph, it's that God goes with you. These decisions, these non-moral decisions that we make, God is not a sadist who is waiting for you to choose the wrong decision. No, our God goes with you. And if he goes with you faithfully, this is good news. So this is, uh, this is lesson three. We've talked about contentment and the karate kid. We've talked about God's will and Tom Cruise. Now let's talk about radical forgiveness and resurrection. Radical forgiveness and resurrection. As we continue in our story of Joseph, this is the twist in our story. Joseph, he's in charge of Egypt. He's controlling uh, he's controlling the output of grain, and he's controlling the trade that's happening in the midst of famine. And we think the story may end here, but he sees his brothers again. Yes, the same brothers who sold him into Egypt. He runs into them once again. They don't recognize him. This makes sense. They don't recognize their brother because he's supposed to be dead for one. And then on top of that, he's in charge of all of Egypt. So he's in an uncanny place. So they don't really expect him to be at Pharaoh's right hand. And yet their brother stands there. And then lastly, their brother would be speaking a different language. He would be speaking an Egyptian language, while of course they would be speaking Hebrew. And so they do not recognize their brother. And this is the interaction that takes place. Genesis 42, the sons of Israel, remember this is the sons of Jacob, were among those who came to buy grain 
for the famine was also in the land of Canaan. Joseph was in charge of the country. He sold grain to all its people. His brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the ground, kind of like a dream that Joseph had 13 years ago. In this moment, Joseph has a decision. This twist of a story, this twist ending, Joseph has a decision. What will he do with these brothers? They've wronged him, they enslaved him, and they sold him, and they think he is dead. And Joseph sees them bowing down before him. And Joseph chooses to see if these are the same brothers who sold him into slavery. Joseph chooses to test and see if these are brothers who are still willing to sell a brother, still willing to harm so that they, that they may have the upper hand. And Joseph tests his brothers. We see this in Genesis 44. Joseph commanded his steward. This is a brilliant process. Joseph commanded his steward, fill the men's bags with as much food as they can carry and put each one's silver back at the top of his bag. Put my cup, the silver one, at the top of the youngest one's bag, along with the silver for his grain. So he did as Joseph told him. At morning light, the men were sent off with their donkeys. They had not gone very far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, get up, pursue the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Isn't this the cup that my master drinks from and uses for divination? What you have done is wrong. So Joseph sets them up. Joseph sends them with a test and sends this cup with the youngest son, Benjamin. And the, the brothers respond. And when they're, when they're told about the silver cup, this is their response. Not very wise, but they say this. If it is found with one of us, your servants, he must die and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. Now, I don't know why they decided to up the ante. I don't know why they decided that this would be the better, the, the better measure, but they are so convinced that they do not have the cup, the stolen cup. They're so convinced. And so they said, if it is found with one of us, your servants, he must die and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. The steward replied, what you have said is right, but only the one who is found to have it will be my slave. The rest of you will be blameless. Only one will be guilty. Only one will go guilty. The rest of you would be free to go. Benjamin, as we know, has the cup. And when the brothers find the cup in Benjamin's bag, they tear their clothes and they mourn. And they know that Benjamin is destined to be a slave, to be sold as a slave to the Egyptians. The next scene that we see, they are brought in front of Joseph. And being brought in front of Joseph, Judah, interestingly enough, Judah, the one who originally sold Joseph, says this to his brother, who he does not recognize. He says, if I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, his life is wrapped up with the boy's life. When he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. Then your servants will have brought the gray hairs of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. He's saying, if we don't come back with Benjamin, our father will die from grief. Your servant became accountable to my father for the boy, saying, if I do not return him to you, I will always bear the guilt for sinning against you, my father. Now, please 
This is beautiful. Now, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave. Let me remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let him go back with his brothers. For how could I go back to my father without the boy? I could not bear to see the grief that would overwhelm my father. Now with Judah originally, his grief, the grief of his father never bothered him. But now Judah, his brothers are profoundly different. There's something that has changed in them. Their desires have changed and they have repented. They have learned from, they have learned from the disaster that they struck upon Joseph when they sold him, when they sold him 13 years ago. At this, and this is beautiful, at this, Joseph responds. This is Genesis 45. Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of his attendance. So he called out, send everyone away from me. No one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers, but he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and also Pharaoh's household heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But they could not answer him because they were terrified in his presence, and they should be. They were terrified in his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. Church, hear this. The one you sold into Egypt, he said, come near me. I am Joseph, your brother, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. Scripture preaches itself. Kind of like our Lord. Sent ahead to preserve life. Then Joseph threw his arms around his brother jo Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin wept on his shoulder. Joseph kissed each of his brothers as he wept. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. What kind of forgiveness is this? What kind of reconciliation is this? The Old Testament God is not a God of wrath. Not a God of thirstless violence. But our God is one of reconciliation. He's one of forgiveness. If we follow him, this is our lesson. This is our lesson. If we claim to be people who follow the way of Jesus, we must, we must be the ones to instigate reconciliation. We must be the ones to instigate forgiveness. We must be the ones who reach out first. Now, I want you to think about Joseph because he was blameless. He had done nothing wrong. And two, he also had all of the power at his disposal and he chooses forgiveness. Much like our Lord, who was blameless, who had no sin against him, and all of the power of creation at disposal, and he chooses forgiveness. Now, this is a hard word for us that we must instigate. We must instigate reconciliation. Husbands, I want to talk to you for a second. Husbands, I want to talk to you for a second. As men, as people who lead, we must put our pride away 
we must put our anger away and we must first reach out in reconciliation. Yes, when we don't want to. Yes, when we don't feel like it. Yes, when we feel like we are right, we must reach out in reconciliation first. Parents, this is true for you with your children to reach out in reconciliation. The people of God who are gathered here today, this is true of us, that we must be the people who reach out first for reconciliation. This is not easy work. This is difficult work, but this is good work. We must be reconciling. But David, you said that we would learn about resurrection and we will. So Jesus teaches us a beautiful lesson about reconciliation. Jesus teaches us a beautiful lesson about forgiveness. The leader of his disciples, Peter, was probably a little bit too loud, probably a little bit too quick to speak. He says this to the Lord. And this is in the book of John. It says, Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. He's talking about the cross. Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. And to no surprise, our Lord is right. After he is arrested, Peter is following close behind him, and he is asked three different times, do you know this Jesus of Nazareth? And he says three times, I do not know that man. And the rooster crows. And Peter, feeling the shame and the guilt, disappears. After the power of the resurrection, the story is not finished. Hallelujah. We see this beautiful scripture written in John 21. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asks Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time, Jesus asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, Jesus told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he had asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Three denials and three beautiful reconciliations. You see, Joseph and Jesus have a lot in common. They are faithful amidst unjust circumstances. They both submit to God's will, Joseph and the house of men who own him, and Jesus as he is submitting all the way to the cross. Now, while Joseph has the power to forgive his brothers, my church, Jesus has the power to forgive you all. While Joseph had the character that we always wanted, Jesus has the power that we needed. And in his death, and especially in his resurrection, we can be free. This is the gospel. Church, this is why we worship. 
We worship because he has been good to us, because he, though blameless and all-powerful, reached out in reconciliation first. I want to end here, and we will do the bread and the cup. And this is a uh, this is a lesson at the very end of Genesis. Joseph's brothers don't believe that the forgiveness will last. Joseph's brothers don't believe that they are really safe. And so they write, they write to Joseph and they say this, and it is much like, much like our Lord's words to us. It says this, they sent this message to Joseph before he died. Your father gave a command, say this to Joseph, please forgive your brother's transgression and their sin, the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when their message came to him. His brothers also came to him, bowed down before him and said, we are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. It's like the Lord's words to us. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And maybe you came in today and you were under the impression that the Old Testament God is quite an angry God. It's quite, a, it's quite an upsettable God. And yet we see, we see God reconciling and we see him faithful and we see him merciful. And this God persists today. So I don't know what you came in with. I don't know if you came in with self-doubt I don't know if you came in with struggles of sin. I don't know if you came in questioning whether that God truly loves you or not. But please know that our God is gentle and lowly in heart. And he loves you and he is for you. This is not a God who wants to see you hurting or who wants to cast you away but a God who wants to draw you close. So we worship. We gather together because he's been good to us.